Hello and welcome to the PCOS Diva podcast. My name is Amy Medling. I'm a certified health coach and I'm the founder of PCOS Diva. And my mission is to help women with PCOS find the tools and knowledge they need to take control of their PCOS so they can regain their fertility, femininity, health, and happiness. This podcast is sponsored by my new book, Healing PCOS, a 21-day plan that takes you step-by-step through healing and thriving with PCOS. It's all in there waiting for you, beginning with the three keys to living your best life as a PCOS diva. For more details, visit HealingPCOS.com. Today, I am just really thrilled to have one of my favorite guests come back on the PCOS Steva podcast, Dr. Laura Bryden. So welcome, Dr. Laura. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me again. I uh, had you on, I think, like three years ago when you came out with your period repair manual um, for the first time. And yeah. let me just give folks a little bit of information about you. If um, they haven't heard of you, you're a naturopathic doctor and you are the period revolutionary leading the change to better periods. Informed by a strong science background and more than 20 years experience with patients, Lara is a passionate communicator about women's health and alternatives to hormonal birth control, and her book, Period Repair Manual, is a manifesto of natural treatment for better hormones and better periods, and provides practical solutions using nutrition supplements and natural hormones. And I can definitely attest to that. Your book really, I mean, it, it has been revolutionary um, in the way that women can really understand how their body works and what a quote-unquote normal period is, and then how to kind of work using natural treatments and lifestyle and supplements to work towards that kind of ideal. So I just, I want to thank you for writing this book, because it's been a great resource for me, and I talk about it all the time. (laughs) Oh, thank you. That's, yeah, that's really sweet. So I'm glad it's reaching so many women. Yeah, and I, and I was really excited that you have um, come up three years later with a second edition, and it's fully uh, revised and updated, and I've been really yeah. enjoying it over the last couple of days, uh, yeah. rereading it, preparing for our interview today. Yeah, and I had some help with this edition from <clears throat> Professor Gerilyn Pryor, who's a reproductive endocrinologist, and she, yeah, there's a couple of really just interesting insights from her that are in the book quotes from her, and it was yeah, it was lovely to have her set of eyes on some of these issues, especially yeah, PCOS and yeah, she. I mean, she's really a um, pioneer in yeah. in progesterone therapy. I, didn't she train under Dr. John Lee? I think I don't know about that. I mean, she's certainly been advocating for decades yeah. that women need to ovulate. Women need ovulatory cycles. There's a quote in my book that. Regular ovulatory cycles are both an indicator and a creator of health, which I just love. I use that quote so much now. And that's really about how we need to ovulate so we can make progesterone and how beneficial that is for our bones and our brain and, you know, nervous system and mood. And, yeah. I, I want to just um, have you reiterate something that you, I remember you talking about in our, on our previous podcast, which I will list in the show notes so you can listen to it, um, is that a, a period on the birth control pill is not a true period. And maybe you just um, yeah. 
kind of explain what you mean by that? Pill bleeds are not periods. They're drug-induced bleeds, which mean nothing in terms of health. Um, that's in contrast to a real period, which is the bleed that follows ovulation, two weeks after ovulation. And I guess I'm trying to reframe period or cycle as a monthly event that involves ovulation. That's what it's really all about. And um, that's where we get our health benefits. That's a sign of health. My, my basic point is that if, you know, if, if women are going to use, be put on hormonal birth control to shut down their hormonal system, then they don't need to bleed. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I, I sort of, I obviously prefer that, and I like to offer ways that women can um, be without hormonal birth control, find other solutions for their symptoms. But if they're going to use it, there's really no reason to have a monthly cycle. That's just a smokescreen set up in the kind of 1950s and 60s to sort of sell the drug and make us, everyone, you know, doctors and patients think that it was something natural. Mm. So I know for myself, coming off of the birth control and really working, it took me, you know, I would say at least a couple years to get um, of, of lifestyle change and really dedicating myself to um, the, the, this PCOS diva lifestyle that I've developed for myself and others for my periods to really normalize. And I think um, what Dr. Geraldine said is absolutely, as I saw my periods normalizing and ovulating, it was really, it was a reflection of my body coming back into balance. Um, and and I, that's something that's there for almost every woman. Mm-hmm. I know some of your listeners might be thinking, oh, well, I can't ever do that. You know, the doctors told me I can't ovulate. That's, mm-hmm. in my experience, with thousands of patients and now thousands of readers, you know, mm-hmm. for almost every woman, that possibility is there to have regular cycles. It might take a little while to get there. Mm-hmm. It can take a year or two, but this is why I talk about playing the long game. Mm-hmm. You know, trusting the process, which is, I think I have something I just read that you said, you know, trust Mm -hmm. the process, play the long game. Yeah. Yeah. And and it is, it's not like a quick fix. It's not the sprint. It's, it's, you're in it for the marathon. Um, So for women that um, are not, uh, you don't have regular periods, aren't ovulating um, in your book, you really help, help us troubleshoot and kind of figure out what's going on. And so most of the women listening here have, um, I'm assuming, have PCOS, and yeah. that's the reason they're not ovulating. So tell us how you like to diagnose PCOS um, in your practice with the women you see. Okay, I, I think to narrow it down, I mean, I think a true PCOS picture always, by definition, has um, androgens or elevated male hormones. So those possibly measurable on blood tests. There's a few different ones that I look for, but not just testosterone, total testosterone, <clears throat> but androstenedione and DHEA and start to look at those. Um, rule out other conditions that could be causing high androgens. One is congenital adrenal hyperplasia, which is actually a lot more common than I thought. So I've, I talk about that in the book a little bit. Um, and if, but even if you can't pick up the androgens on blood tests, there is some value in just looking at symptoms. I mean, there has to be something, some degree of facial hair or possibly, you know, hair loss. Acne on its own is not um, 
diagnostic for PCOS, but it can be part of the picture. And then combine that with um, usually irregular ovulation, although there's a bit of debate about that. But you'll notice that one thing I haven't said there is ultrasound, because one thing that I was I find in my own patients, and I'm you know I think this is happening in, in the larger sphere as well, is that doctors are really quick to throw out the diagnosis. So they you know they're they're relying too heavily on the ultrasound. And it's really important that women understand they cannot be diagnosed that way. If that's the only finding is irregular periods and a polycystic appearance on, on ultrasound, <coughs> in my view, that's not enough to say you have the condition. So there could be some of your listeners that have kind of ended up with the wrong diagnosis. Um, and, and, and they might be looking at more of, for example, a post-pill amenorrhea or a hypothalamic, what's called hypothalamic amenorrhea, which is, which is different from PCOS. You know, it, um, it's, it's possible sometimes for women to swing between the two of them, PCOS to hypothalamic amenorrhea, but it's an important distinction because the thing that makes hypothalamic amenorrhea worse is restricting the diet too much. So I have seen women sort of go down the path thinking they have PCOS, cutting, cutting out more and more carbs and ending up with just never getting their period because they're under eating. So that's something I talk about in the book as well. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's, um, that's really interesting. And that makes a lot of sense, um, cutting out the carbs and thinking that you're doing the right thing. Yeah. And it's, it's, you're aggravating the situation. Um, and, you know, you are probably the first person that I heard kind of coin the term, post-pill PCOS. I think you talked about it in your, um, the first edition of your book. Um, and you just, you kind of uh, alluded to that just a moment ago. Can you explain uh, what you mean by that for listeners? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it, it's pretty common for women to not start to ovulate again when they've come off the pill. Um, and during that time, my observation is it's pretty likely to be given the diagnosis of PCOS. So for me, for my patients, my first thought, my very first question would be, okay, is this just that something has been revealed that you had PCOS before you ever went on the pill and now it's been masked and now it's come back? So that would be more of a true PCOS situation. But there's also a lot of women who had normal periods before they went on the pill and are then in a, what would be described as a more temporary state of PCOS after coming off the pill. And Professor Pryor, who helped me with the book, she referred to that as temporary anovulatory androgen excess. So this is just after the drugs, after being on those androgen-suppressing drugs and ovarian-suppressing drugs. But like Yasmin, which is, yeah. which is one of those pills that are often recommended for women that look like they have PCOS. Yeah. My experience with Yasmin specifically um, is that a lot of women seem, seem to get a temporary surge of androgens when they come off. And that, you know, can show up in the skin. But even I've measured it. Like I've seen, I've certainly had patients where for this, maybe six months after coming off something like Yasmin, they're actually showing a bit of high androgenodione, for example. But then it, you know, it, it settles down. And p- part of it could be because they're doing treatments to settle that down. But I think at least for some of my patients, my observation is that was they were not probably not a high androgen person genetically, if you know what I mean. Like they mm-hmm. were just pushed into that 
temporarily. And so then my advice would be if, you know, if you can move out of that state, if you then find your androgens settle down and you're ovulating regularly, for some of those post-pill women, I think they can then let go of the diagnosis of PCOS. I would say that was not, you know, the mm-hmm. true genetic PCOS like some other women have. So the part of the problem with PCOS is that it's <clears throat> an umbrella diagnosis. So it's the same term is being used to describe women with high androgens for, that are kind of there for all sorts of different reasons, you know, hopefully also ruling out some of the obvious ones like adrenal hyperplasia, which shouldn't not be called PCOS, but often are. And so you've got, you know, you've got the true PCOS with the insulin resistance all kind of clumped together with the kind of hypothalamic amenorrhea with a polycystic binding on ultrasound clumped together with this, you know, post-pill temporary androgen excess. So just out of in, it was, came out of my own clinical work. It's like trying to get results. I need to look beyond the PCOS diagnosis, not just give a cookbook approach, you know, generic PCOS approach for all these women. We need to understand what their bodies are actually doing. So that's where the different <coughs> types came out of. It's just a very practical, functional way for me to get results with patients. Unfortunately, it also seems to be working out there in the real world. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I think that it's kind of a double-edged sword, like this um, momentum that we're building in the PCOS community with awareness. Uh, I don't know if you follow PCOS Challenge here in the States, but they just, uh, they were able to get the Senate to acknowledge PCOS um, as a health kind of crisis and designate PCOS Awareness Month in, in September, and we're trying to get a bill passed um, and get the House to also um, recognize it. But yeah, yeah. so I think that things are really moving forward. I see a lot more media articles um, about PCOS than I did when I first started PCOS Diva. Yeah. Um, but with that, I think comes that that possibility of um, overdiagnosis. I mean, especially, I think, with our teenagers. Um, and, you know, tell us about your thoughts on diagnosing a teen with PCOS and then, and then putting her on the birth control pill and metformin, which is usually, I think, what probably happens. Yeah. Well, teenagers are in a temporary state of PCOS, almost by definition. And I learned that from one of your other guests, Dr. Fiona McCullough, who mm-hmm. in what you could link to one of her podcasts. I don't know if she spoke about that with you. Yes. Uh-huh. I forget where I first heard that. But I read that in her book. That just, as soon as she said that, I thought, yeah, that makes total sense. And since then, I've seen in some of the guidelines in Australia where I practice that doctors are not permitted or should never be given the, giving the diagnosis of PCOS to a girl younger than 20. Mm-hmm. Because... They all teens have some degree of insulin resistance. All teens have potentially a higher number of follicles, and so therefore polycystic appearing ovaries. And all te- many teens, especially in their younger years, have irregular periods. So when you look at that whole you know population, that's what's happening. It makes sense that we have to be careful not to put a label on these girls too quickly. That said, if I meet a teen who is definitely insulin resistant and eating a lot of sugar and I can see kind of going down the path of that's not going to end well (laughs) with her hormonal system 
I will, I think, you know, I want to intervene with diet. I don't think, I just, I'm not against, totally against the drug metformin, but I just can't see how a teenager should need that. Their bodies respond so well to dietary changes. Um, it's my experience clinically, like they don't need that. And they certainly don't need the pill. And I, I worry very much about putting teens on the pill because we know of its you know, potential long-term effects. <clears throat> and the way it interrupts the maturation process of the female hormone signaling pathways, it's just, yeah, not a good idea to be putting a teenager, a 13-year-old on the pill. Mm. I just had a, a mother and daughter on. Um, I just recorded a podcast a couple days ago, and this was a mother and daughter that I coached years ago when when she was um, 15. And they came to me because she was put on the pill and she was getting very depressed um, because depression is a side effect. Um, and her mother was getting really concerned, and I was kind of like their last-ditch effort. And um, it's... Uh, and I'm going to have to link to that on this podcast note too, because yeah. if you have a teen, you have to listen. It's so inspiring. Now, um, Sarah is, I think she's a junior in college and she's gorgeous and thriving and modeling and, um, you know, has lost a ton of weight and just, you know, just with lifestyle uh, yeah. supplements and, you know, didn't really, you know, once she was sort of shown the way, um, yeah. right. It, 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 everything sort of um, came back into balance within six to eight months, her mom said. Nice. Mm -hmm. That's a lovely story. Yeah. 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 Um, something else that I wanted to talk to you about, you wrote a blog article, I think it was this past fall, about pain and PCOS. And um, that pain really is not a symptom of PCOS. And in my work, I have kind of come to that conclusion as well, that that yeah. pain is an indication that there's something else going on. And I would love for you to um, talk to listeners about that. Yeah. PCOS is a hormonal condition. It, it's the doctor that should be advising people about PCOS are endocrinologists. That it's, a, it's a whole body metabolic hormonal condition. It's not a gynecological condition. And this is where the confusion comes. That Polycystic ovaries are not painful. They are, there are, that said, there are lots of other kinds of ovarian cysts that are painful. The, word, the problem is partly with the word cyst, um, which it sounds bad. <laughs> it sounds like oh, I've got something abnormal on my ovaries. Mm -hmm. But technically, a cyst, as technically the normal ovary has cysts as well. They're the eggs, the follicles that are developing. So different things can happen there. Like in a normal ovary, those cysts, I guess, or follicles will, you know, there'll be a certain number of them. One will progress to ovulation and the ovary will look a certain way on ultrasound. With abnormal, painful ovarian cysts, there are at least a dozen different ways that can go badly. And you can get a large, enlarged cyst that, you know, is, that's happening for different reasons. You can get what are called endometriomas, which are, endometriosis cysts, technically, although they're from another disease called endometriosis, though all of those can cause pain. With polycystic ovaries, what's happened is the follicles are underdeveloped. They're just tiny. They're not progressing to ovulation. It doesn't mean anything pathological with the ovary it, like the other conditions are. It just means that 
yeah, hormonally, it's not, ovulation's not happening. So my experience, it can be very confusing for women. I understand that because they, my, what I see happening is that women have pain. could be for lots of different reasons. They go to the doctor. They have an investigation. The doctor discovers polycystic ovaries. They're both, the doctor and the patient are kind of thinking, oh, that sounds bad. <laughs> you know, that's abnormal. That must be the explanation for the pain. And it's not, you know, it could be that, it doesn't mean that the patient doesn't also have the hormonal condition, polycystic ovarian syndrome. She might, but that's not the explanation for the pain. There's another reason. It could just be normal period pain, or it could be endometriosis, which is um, a common condition. affects one in ten women. It's It's completely possible to have both polycystic ovarian syndrome, the hormonal condition, and endometriosis, the gynecological condition, at the same time, which seems cruel, but is very possible. So I encourage my patients and readers to kind of not stop, not stop at that polycystic um, ultrasound finding, but to look deeper, dig deeper, and treat the pain and try to get an explanation for it. So I just was going to give a shout out to one of um, my favorite experts when it comes to solving um, pelvic pain issues is Jessica Drummond. And her, um, I'm just going to give you, give listeners her website. It's integrativewomenshealthinstitute.com. And that is what she works on is, you know, kind of figuring out what causes pelvic pain. So that that's a good resource for for those women that are really suffering with pain and, and, and have PCOS, but it really isn't a PCOS symptom per se. And it's, yeah, it's interesting you bring up, like, so she sounds like she's kind of like a pelvic pain detective because that's what mm-hmm. it requires because um, it could just be muscular, you know, it could be spasm, it could be inflammation, it could be adhesions. There's lots of different reasons. And I, it really tweaked me was once I had a reader a comment on my blog. She's like, I keep doing everything for PCOS. She meant, like, you know, cutting carbs and, t- you know, and she's like, and nothing helps. And I said, helps with what? Like, because she, by that point, said that she was having regular cycles and had no symptoms of androgens. I'm like, what are you, what are you needing to be helped with? And she said, the pain. It's like, okay, right. Let's back to the drawing board. This is, you know, all these treatments for hormonal treatments for PCOS are not going to. Yeah, no. So that, so I really wanted to kind of clear the clear the air on that topic. Um, something else that I thought was really interesting while reading your book. The other night. Well, you know, before we get there, I want to talk a little bit more about, um, you know, I think the pain for a lot of women, there's an inflammation um, connection. Certainly, you know, there can be um, pain. Well, I think what we're referring to is pelvic pain and PCOS. But I think a lot of women with PCOS have joint pain. um, And that comes from inflammation. So I'd love for you to explain sort of the inflammation connection with PCOS. Um, And I think that's actually even one of your kind of types of PCOS that you've um, identified. Yeah. So, well, first of all, it's, it's pretty standard for there to, to be some degree of chronic inflammation with any type of PCOS, even with the Mm -hmm. main insulin resistant PCOS that even that insulin resistance pre-diabetic state generates the degree of inflammation. Um, so that's just always there. But my observation is there's kind of another group of women for whom 
a chronic inflammation, possibly coming from the gut or food sensitivities, is one of the major driving factors for impaired ovulation in their case, and also for elevated androgens, because I did find a paper, and my observation is that chronic inflammation, systemic inflammation in the body, seems to um, create a hypersensitivity of the androgen receptors. So certainly I've seen, I'm sure, you know, as part of your protocol, Mm -hmm. reducing inflammation, removing inflammatory foods like, you know, gluten and dairy, just improves androgen symptoms over time. And I think it's part, at least in part, to do with what's happening at the androgen receptors. So there's that picture of, often a picture of chronic inflammation. And as you point out, yeah, that could also be causing other symptoms. So headaches and joint pain, and those are all markers of clues, if you will, that there's a degree of systemic inflammation. So, and that should improve with um, working to correct the inflammation. Yeah, and I, I think diet is just such a powerful, um, you know, it could be the food that you eat can be your greatest medicine or, or the greatest poison, I think, sometimes you put yeah. in your body. Um, and you, you mentioned gluten and dairy, but I think that there's other food sensitivities that you can really you know, dial into. And I actually had a food sensitivity panel done. I, and I have a podcast with um, Dr. Margaret Nicholas that actually did my sensitivity panel. And it came out that I was um, like off the charts high with egg yolks and egg whites, which, you know, in my meal plans, I was, you know, I'm a big proponent of eating eggs for, you know, for the protein in the morning. Um, so it was such a bummer for me, but I cut that out. Um, and you know, every, the other day I was like, Oh, you know, I I was out and I thought, well, I'll have, um, I'm going to try and have an omelet and see how I feel. Well, I was so inflamed. I mean, I just felt it and my, my head hurt. Um, my body ached like I was coming down with the flu, but I know it wasn't the flu and it was the reaction to the eggs. So you, you have to, maybe you could speak to like those food sensitivity panels and, and how do we know what other foods are causing problems? Yeah, there's not an easy, in my view, currently, there's not an easy way to know. You know, I have in the past used those food sensitivity panels. I'm not 100% convinced. Of, mm-hmm. You know, I think they can be helpful, but mm-hmm. I don't treat them like they're written in stone. You know, I think there's, mm-hmm. um, I, I work a lot more currently with trying in mm-hmm. removing foods, um, and there's some. You start this. It's it narrows it. Yes, potentially any food could be inflammatory for someone, but that for most people it, it boils down to the kind of the top three or four. Um, gluten and dairy are probably the most common, but I, I estimate that an egg sensitivity, like what you're describing, in my patient population, probably is about one in ten women. So it's not the most common, but it's certainly there. And especially, I look at it more if there's any, I look at eggs more if there's any evidence of autoimmune, autoimmunity happening at all. There was a, another book that came out this year by Isabella Wentz, the thyroid Hashimoto's book and autoimmune thyroid book. And I was interested, I think I've got this right, that she recommends no eggs for, as part of her basic protocol for anyone with autoimmune thyroid, which I yeah, I took note of that. I thought that kind of makes sense to me. Um, 
we know that autoimmune thyroid disease is actually quite common in the PCOS population, mm-hmm. more common than in the general population. There's a bit of overlap there between the conditions, which goes back to our what we we're saying about inflammation playing a role. So, for example, if my patient is positive for thyroid antibodies for the autoimmune marker of thyroid disease, then I would be looking more seriously at strictly, at least trying to strictly avoid gluten and eggs for a couple months, you know, two or three months. You you can't just do it for a few days or even a week and expect to see very much change. It needs to be given a chance for the immune system to calm down after the removal of that food. The other Condition that endometriosis. Oh, that sorry. I'll give you giving it away. That eggs seem to play a role in endometriosis. Back to that inflammatory condition of the pelvis, gynecological condition, um, highly inflammatory condition, um, way more than PCOS. Like it's characterized primarily by inflammation and endometriosis. Routinely, I think it needs to, women need to be looking at no, strictly no gluten, strictly no cow's dairy, and possibly no eggs for a few months to see how that is. I recently shared a post about eggs and I had a, on my social media and I had a lot of endometriosis sufferers saying, yeah, that for them, that was the missing part. You know, avoiding eggs is what really seemed to kind of turn it around for them. So, yeah, unfortunately, because eggs are such a great food. I love them. I know, you know, like, I know. As a, nutritionally, like I just objectively, I'm like, they are wonderful. They're like a superfood. But at the same time, unfortunately, for various reasons I think they're one of the inflammatory foods yeah I know and I have to keep telling myself nothing tastes as good as feeling good feels Um, but sometimes you know you just make the choice to have it and suffer the consequences I guess all that said I think there are a number of your listeners who can eat eggs so I don't Mm -hmm. want people to go away thinking oh that's it I'm off eggs you know I think think it's true Mm -hmm. You know, look for evidence of inflammation like we've talked about, you know, joint pain and skin things, skin inflammation. And eczema eczema is a common marker of egg sensitivity as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But if if you don't have any of those things and you're really more of just the insulin-resistant type of PCOS, you can have eggs. You know, I don't Mm – I wouldn't say – I'd say the majority of my PCOS patients, I ask them to have eggs because I think that's a – nutritious, easy way to eat, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, and and for, for more of the nuanced information, you really have to get a, a copy of your book so that you can kind of see the different protocols you have for each type of PCOS. And you kind of have a little quiz in there too to kind of help you determine, um, you know, what, what protocol you should be talking yeah. about? A, a flow chart. Flow chart, yeah. The flow chart, and it, I'll <clears throat> say the first part of the flow chart for your listeners. The very first question: If someone's told you you have PCOS, however that was diagnosed, um, find out if you have insulin resistance. I really do. Or to what to what degree you have insulin resistance? For me, that's just the crux of the matter. Mm-hmm. And if, if you have severe insulin resistance, then focus on that. And don't get distracted by too many of the other mm-hmm. you know, things that are in my book. Like, just it's really about getting that insulin down. And just on the topic of overdiagnosis, we've talked about that a bit today. I do want to say, acknowledge there are a lot of at the same time. There's a lot of underdiagnosis yeah. happening because there are a lot of women with insulin resistance having you know a few periods a year because of the insulin resistance essentially who don't 
know that's what's going on. And that's, that's a problem. Like those women really need help. And those are the women <clears throat> who really need to understand that this is a hormonal condition, that it's putting them at risk for, you know, longer term problems. And that the solution of, you know, changing the diet and, Get, bringing the insulin down could just be a life changer for them. So mm-hmm. uh, that kind of outreach work and trying to reach more women and you know, increase the number of the awareness is really important too. Yeah, I love that you mentioned that. I actually posted um, on my PCOS Diva page today about this campaign that um, a, a company that I just uh, I actually did another podcast with called Cellomatics. Um, they do genetic testing for fertility, but they have a campaign called Say the F Word. And, you know, it's a little provocative, but the F, yeah. word, the, the F word is fertility. Oh. Um, and it's, it's about really opening up that fertility um, conversation and not being afraid to talk about your fertility. And I kind of want to say that about your book, too. It's, uh, you know, period repair manual. It's not just about PCOS. It's about women's health. And, yeah. um I, I think I shared this with you, you probably don't remember, but, but I was reading your book for the first time. Now it's like three years ago. Uh, I, my, we took our family to, on a cruise to Bermuda, and I was on the pool deck. And you know how crowded those cruise pool decks are. You know, you're kind of sandwiched together. And I'm reading the book and listening to a, kind of over my shoulder a conversation with a bunch of moms, um, you know, about my age, you know, middle age, 40s, they were talking about their teenage daughters and their periods and everything. And I, and I honestly, I turned around and I said, I don't mean to be listening to your conversation, but I'm reading the best book right here. You need to read it and share it with your daughter. Um, So I think you're right. I mean, we have to feel like we can have these conversations with our friends and, you know, our female, you know, our family members. And I think your book is just a great, um, resource and uh, conversation opener. And it's interesting what you say about uh, um, fertility because I would argue fertility is not just about making babies. This is one of the things too. You know, we, we tend to, with women's health, compartmentalize it. So, you know, doctors will have this idea. It's like, well, you don't really need any of that until you're actually ready to have a baby and then come back and then we'll kind of oh sure fertility treatment machine and it's like but even for those women who maybe never want babies or you know that it doesn't have or or years before or i've finished their babies or it doesn't matter it's to do with fertility is to do with ovulation which is what i said at the beginning is a both an indicator of vitality and a source of vitality so it's our kind of spark hormonal spark if you think if you compare it to men you know obviously we know that testosterone is quite important for men and if they lost their testosterone spark, you know, we would be thinking that's a problem for them, for their general health. It's the same for women. We need the estrogen and progesterone that come from ovulation. Those aren't the same. Those are very different molecules than, are the, than the drugs that come from the pill. So we need to make them, those hormones, vitality hormones with our ovaries, and that's our hormonal spark, and it matters. And this, is, this has been Professor Pryor's work for these last, you know, a couple decades of this, this matters. Ovulation matters for women, not just about making babies. Yeah, and that's, that's really a great way, end point for this podcast. And I, I do want to just um, make one comment there, which I know you, yeah. you would agree with. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's the artificial hormones and birth control, but also 
the artificial progesterone that so many women are given that, you know, they think that they're taking progesterone when it's yeah. really not. <laughs> yeah. So there's a, a post on a blog, a post on my blog called the crucial difference between progesterone and progestins, the progestin drugs. They're really yeah, very different in their effects. For example, progesterone, the hormone, the natural hormone is beneficial for mood. It helps to stabilize the adrenal axis. It's called the HPA axis. Progestins don't have that benefit. They have the opposite. They, as you mentioned earlier, have been linked with depression and anxiety. So that's just one example. You know, progestin, progesterone is good for hair. Many, not all, but many progestins cause hair loss. So many progestins are androgens. So that's another, I guess, type, if you will, of well, exactly a type of PCOS. But there's a lot of women who've been on a, say, a, what's called a, the drug levengestrol, one of the most common progestins used in hormonal birth control is like testosterone. So they've been on that for years. They get hair loss. They get, start to get this androgen picture happening. They might be told they have PCOS when all along it's been from the pill that they've been taking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this, this podcast has been so um, you know, eye-opening for, I think, a lot of us. And I, I really encourage women to get a copy of your book because it's um, – I mean, there's just such a wealth of information and it's so aligned with what, you know, I try to teach. And, you know, I don't, uh, I'm very picky about the people I bring on to my podcast and rarely do I invite people back for, you know, two times. So you are a, a, you know, a special, um, special person to me. And I'm just so thrilled you took the time to, you know, share your amazing knowledge with us today. Thank you, Amy. It was a real delight talking to you again. I would love if you could just um, share a little bit if people want to find out more about your work, where can they find you? Yeah, I'm easy to find. My website is larabryden.com, Lara Bryden, the period revolutionary. And I'm on, I'm on also Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at <coughs> Lara Bryden. And my book is Period Repair Manual on Amazon or iTunes or the usual and and I love and I love your blog posts too. They're always so so interesting. So I encourage you know folks to just drop in every now and then and read your latest blogs. Yeah, great. Thank you, Amy. Well, thank you, and thank you everyone for listening. Thanks for joining us today. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast and learned a little something that can help you along in your journey. For more information about PCOS and PCOS Diva products and programs, visit PCOSDiva.com. This podcast was sponsored by my new book, Healing PCOS. It's my proven 21-day diet and lifestyle plan to help women with PCOS take back control of their health and resolve their symptoms. Healing PCOS offers you daily, small, manageable steps that help alleviate symptoms and control the inflammation, hormonal imbalance, and insulin resistance that underlie PCOS. The 21-day plan consists of a 21-day anti-inflammatory hormone balancing meal plan, including meal prep and plan-ahead tips to make eating like a PCOS diva sustainable, 85 delicious recipes, daily lessons, and self-care exercises. I have helped tens of thousands of women with PCOS take back control over their health, 
and their lives through lasting healing and sustainable lifestyle change. So whether you're newly diagnosed or have struggled a lifetime with PCOS, this book is for you. Find it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere books are sold.